Grace to you and peace from God our Father and from our Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. Dear brothers and sisters, we Lutherans often speak with great pride of the first Martin, Martin Luther, and the second Martin, Martin Chemnitz. And in this place, some even speak of a third Martin, probably the most martial of them all, Martin Charlemagne. But our beloved Martin Luther was not really the first Martin, and simply saying his name should remind us of that fact. You see, yesterday, November 10th, was the anniversary of Martin Luther's birth. The following day, November 11th, 1483, the young baby was baptized. Since November 11 is St. Martin's Day, it was only natural that Hans and Margareta should choose for their baby boy the name Martin, Little Mars, or Little Warrior. So today we join our hearts and voices with the people of God around the world in celebrating the memory of this 11th of November Martin, Martin, the Bishop of Tours. Martin was born sometime around the year 316 in what we today would call Turkey, but he was raised in Italy. Neither of his parents was Christian. Martin's father served as a military tribune in the elite forces stationed at Pannonia. Yet when Martin was only a boy of about 10 years, already his great desire was to receive baptism and to devote his life to the service of the church. His father had other plans for his little warrior. A few years later, an imperial edict was issued that required all sons of veteran soldiers to be enrolled in full-time military service. Through information supplied by his own father, Martin was arrested and taken in chains to enter full-time military service. Rather than despair of his hope to spend his life serving Christ, the 15-year-old Martin sought ways to serve his officers and fellow soldiers in patience and humility and love. His biographer tells us that Martin was more monk than soldier even at that early age. Through his service, he won the respect and admiration of all who knew him. One bitter, cold winter night in northern France, the young soldier Martin chanced upon a poor man at the city gate. Many people had already died that year because of the cold, and here was a man with barely any clothing to protect him. Martin watched as person after person passed by, with ears deaf to the beggar's pleading, eyes blind to his need, hearts colder even than the wind chill. What could Martin do? 
He himself was wearing only the uniform provided him by the army. He had already given away everything that could be given away to help others. He had only his simple soldier's cloak to protect himself from the cold. Turning his sword into a weapon of compassion, Martin cut his cloak in half. He gave one half to the poor man and kept the other half for himself. Some of the bystanders began to laugh at this young soldier who looked so utterly ridiculous, trying to cover himself in half a cloak. Others, however, were cut to the heart. For they had more than enough to wear and easily could have shared what they had with this poor man without sacrificing anything of their own warmth and comfort. That night, as Martin slept, he had a vision of Christ. His Lord approached him wearing the half cloak that Martin had given to the beggar. The Lord asked Martin if this was indeed his cloak. After Martin confirmed that, yes, that was half of it anyway, he heard his Lord say, Martin, who is still only a catechumen, has clothed me with his robe. Well, what then should I tell you about this Martin who shared his cloak with Christ by giving it to the one of the least of his brothers? Should I tell you how the 20-year-old Martin, now baptized, appears before Emperor Julian, yes, the apostate, to ask that the emperor release him from military service so that he could become one of Christ's soldiers? Should I tell you how Martin lives and studies with the great scholar, hymn writer, and theologian Hilary of Poitiers? Or should I tell you of the many signs and wonders that accompany Martin's humble service? How he no sooner dismantles a pagan shrine than he replaces it with a Christian chapel. I think there's not enough time to tell you all the stories about Martin. If you'd like, you can read them for yourself in the life of St. Martin, written by his student and friend, Sulpicius Severus. Instead, let me tell you about his office. Yes, his office. I'm afraid I've given you such an alluring picture of Martin that some of you may be tempted to request that Martin supervise your vicarage or internship. But before you put in that request, I think you should hear about his office. You see, the people of Tours in western France were in need of a new bishop and Martin was their choice. What Martin desired with all his heart was to spend his days in the solitary contemplation of the Word of God. The leader of the delegation, however, pleaded with Martin to at least come and see his wife, whom he claimed was ill. The delegation surrounded Martin, both imploring him to come and preventing his escape. Martin, from a sense of duty to his Lord, yielded 
and so was taken sub quondam custodia, as Sulpicius tells us, to serve as their pastor. Yet he carried out his duties in a most unusual way. The noise and busyness of the church in tour did not allow Martin the time or the quiet he needed for meditation and prayer, so he moved two miles away from the city into the cliffs along the Loire River. He built for himself there in the seclusion of those wooded cliffs the very same place where the first Christians of the area had met in secrecy. He built for himself there a small wooden hut. It would be both home and office for the rest of Martin's life. And there, all who needed direction and guidance could find the illustrious Bishop of Tours, sitting in his little wooden hut on his three-legged stool. Although some bishops looked down on this strange colleague who lived in a cave and cared nothing for his appearance, the poor, dirty, ragged clothes of a hermit and literally, to top it all off, his ugly, jagged haircut. Other bishops, and most of the people, admired the patient, humble way Martin carried out his ministry. Martin's life can be summarized by the motto he would be remembered for, non recuso laborum, I will not turn back from work. Non recuso laborum. I will not refuse any labor. I will not protest. I will not turn back. Even when he knew his strength was failing and his life was at an end, Martin would not refuse his Lord's calling. Against the urging of his friends, Martin makes one final trip to reconcile some quarreling Christian brothers. He would not return home alive. Non recuso laborum. I will not refuse. I will not protest. I will not turn back from any labor. I wonder how these words sound to those of us gathered here this morning. How do they sound to you students? Those of you who will graduate this spring and follow your callings to serve in the kingdom, to those of you who are just beginning your studies here, to those of you laboring to learn Greek and Hebrew, to all of you at the end of another quarter, how do these words of Martin sound? And how do they sound to my colleagues, to you who now know the unending demands of curriculum revision and at the same time try to be model preachers, model Christians, model parents, model spouses. I will not turn back from any labor. How do these words sound to staff 
whether prominent and pressured or unseen and underappreciated. Non recuso laborum. Can there be comfort for any of us in the words of Martin? Don't they just put more pressure, more demands, and even greater burden upon us who are already tired and weak and struggling and perhaps even failing? What drove Martin to such tireless and self-sacrificing service? Where did he find the strength to continue when he was weak or beaten or defeated or dying? This is the lesson Martin has taught me, and this is the reason I've asked you to join with me today in celebrating his memory. I think that Martin never forgot the vision of Christ wearing the other half of his tattered soldier's cloak. I think our Lord taught that young soldier a great lesson that night. Martin would refuse no task of service. He would not give up, not turn back, because he knew that there, in the need of his brother and sister, he would find again his Lord. Again and again, Martin must have seen the same face of his Lord there in the leper, there in the paralyzed young girl, there in the proud bishop, there in the fierce and hostile pagan. Martin could not turn away from any person in need because he knew that in that person he would meet again his Christ, the Lord whom he loved. Martin's friend has written that no one ever saw Martin enraged or excited or lamenting or laughing. He was always one and the same, displaying a kind of heavenly happiness. In constant service, Martin found himself constantly in the presence of his Lord. Again, Martin's friend has written, Never was there any word on his lips but Christ, and never was there a feeling in his heart except peace, piety, and tender mercy. Martin knew very well the sort of master he had been called to serve. The story is told that the devil himself came to tempt Martin, and on one occasion he appeared to Martin in royal splendor, dressed in a magnificent purple robe, wearing a crown of gold and precious jewels. The devil announced, Martin, it is I, Christ. I am about to descend again to the world, but I wanted to show myself again to you first. Worship me if you recognize me. Martin was silent. The devil challenged him a second time. Martin, why do you hesitate? You see, now you must also believe. It is I, Christ. Martin, in the strength of the spirits, answered simply, When my Christ returns, it will be the marks of the cross that he will show me by the signs of his suffering 
will I know him. Martin knew the glory of the Lord was in his faithful service, his humble suffering, his cruel death for the sake of mankind. Martin wanted to share in no other glory than the glory of his Lord. Now, every reference I've been able to find of our Martin to this Martin shows the admiration and respect that Luther had for his namesake saint. In particular, Luther used an example from Martin's life to illustrate the valuable things that can be learned from the saints of old. He retells in his own Lutheran style the episode from a letter of Sulpicius in which he recounts the final words of Martin. Having finished that prayer in which he surrendered to the will of his Lord, saying that if his Lord desired him to return once again to the warfare of this earthly life, he would not refuse. Martin beheld the devil standing at the foot of his bed. Martin boldly said to him, Zia, quid tu histas horrenda bestia, nihil habes in me. Martin apparently spoke an odd mixture of German and Latin, at least when he was addressing the devil. Look, why do you stand here, you horrible beast? You have nothing in me. That, Luther said, was a true word of faith. That is the sort of thing we should take from the stories of the saints. But many modern scholars dismiss these stories of Martin as useless, even offensive fables. Deep in my heart, I fear that there may be another reason for our modern offense at this ancient saint. It's not simply that Martin was said to perform miracles and that we cannot accept such miracles as historical today. I fear it is much deeper, much more serious. I am afraid that Martin shames us the same way he shamed the bystanders on that cold winter night in France. I am afraid that it may be easier for us to explain why there are no Christians like Martin among us today if we can convince ourselves that there never were Christians like Martin. May our Lord forgive us for turning back. May he forgive us, and may he grant us the vision of Martin. May he open our eyes to see him in the faces of our brothers and sisters and in their need. May he draw us to himself by calling us to them. And in our service, may we know that same heavenly happiness that Martin knew. And may it be said of us, no word was on their lips but Christ. No feeling in their hearts but peace and tender mercy. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. <laughs>